Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. It's so hard to believe I've been doing that for over six years as my intro to the show, both from when I was on broadcast radio and the year and a half that I've been doing the show live stream. It It's become my catchphrase, as they say, and having been and still am a big, huge, the Big Bang Theory <laughs> fan, I still get comparisons from fans of the show, from listeners of the show saying, welcome, welcome, welcome. You're kind of like Sheldon where he has to knock three times. <laughs> and I, I say it because I truly am excited to always be here with all of you every week to get to share my incredible guests, to share a bit of my own story. And to introduce you to a new way of thinking, which is asking the right questions. Now, throughout the show, for those of you who may be just joining for the very first time, the whole goal of my show is to introduce you to perception-shifting ideas from guests that have had extraordinary lives. They have different ways of thinking, but we're just gonna, I'm just gonna ask them questions about, in some cases, like my current guest, Joe Serio, his latest book, My Life in Moscow, Vodka Hookers and the Russian Mafia. You are just gonna be in for a ride <laughs> when you read this book, which is um, based on, well, it is the true story of what happened to him while he was doing work investigating the mo Russian mafia and living life in Moscow. So we're gonna get to talk to him about that. As we're take as we're you're listening to the show, you may want to take notes. You may want may not. The beauty of it is I'm doing it live stream right now, but you get to listen to it on the podcast. And thanks to all of you, my fans, the show is in the top five percent worldwide of all podcasts. So thank you for that. And let's dive right in right now and bring to you my guest, my friend, just somebody who is truly amazing. And we met over a hug. I'd like to introduce you all to my friend, Joe Serio. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> ah, thank you. And, you know, everybody always asks me, well, how did you meet this person? that you're having on the show. And ours is a very unique story we met because of a hug. Do you wanna share that? We did, we did. I was in California for a conference and uh, it just, to make a long story short, it just so happened that I saw this woman standing at the door, the standing guard to make sure nobody got into the ballroom <laughs> before they were allowed, except she had a smile on her face. And the thing about me is people that smile readily catch my eye. They, they attract my attention. People with friendly faces attract my attention. And Laura was just standing there beaming, welcoming everybody. And, uh, and I gave her a hug. So I want to, I want to flesh out this story a little bit because it becomes important to the, to the conversation we're about to have. And part of the, part of the important part of the conversation is how things are connected how things are strangely interconnected in a lot of ways we don't realize. So Laura and I met. Then I went to Florida to visit her. We had lunch on the water. That was lovely. And we, over time, kept talking and kept talking and realized that 35 years earlier. <laughs> I forgot about that that day. <laughs> my sisters on Long Island in New York, where we grew up, where I grew up, my family, my two sisters who played guitar at the church masses played at the wedding of Laura's cousin, if I have that right. Yeah, and, my cousin Nancy Ellen. And that was uh, totally, you know, we stumbled onto that fact. Laura did not grow up in New York. I did not know her 35 years ago. Our families didn't know each other. No, I grew up in New York. Did you? Where were yeah. you? I, I grew up in the Bronx and Yonkers, New York, and okay. my, the, I had yeah. family on Long Island, and yeah. Right, but, but none of those lines intersected 35, Not, 40 None years of ago. my lines with yours, right? Right. And our the fam your cousin's family and my family, 
I don't think we knew each other. We kind of knew of each other, maybe. I think they knew of us, but. Yeah. Well, some of your brothers or sisters went to school with my right. cousins. Right. And, and then I called my aunt and I said, I'm sitting here with Joe Serio. And she's like, oh, I know the Serio family. <laughs> well, it was hard not to know us since there were 14 of us. Right. You know, the 12 kids and mom and dad. It was hard not to know at least who we were. But right. Um, but you and I didn't have any connection and I didn't no. have any connection with that family. And it took taking a random trip to California, popping up in this conference and seeing you at the door. And if you didn't have a smile on your face, I would have walked right past you. And, and then we proceeded every single time because I was helping my friend, Audrey Hagen, who runs massive events. She's like, hey, Laura, can you help me behind the scenes? And I'm like, well, okay, sure. So I flew out to California, put the headset on, you know, and the, the whole mic pack for when you're behind a huge event. And she's like, hey, could you just like man the doors? And I had so much fun greeting people. And you you made a point because there were a couple of doors going into the room. You made a point every single time after that of finding the door I was on. <laughs> <laughs> It was fun. It was wow. Fun. And we, we've had a friendship for years now. And I yeah. think I own every book you've written. And yeah. I have autographed copies of all of them. And I would have pulled out all the other ones to show you, except based on a situation I had upstairs in my house, all of books are in boxes put away as I'm redoing it. But this one, your latest one, Vodka Hookers and the Russian Mafia, and everybody, this is an incredible, incredible book. And the reason you're not seeing this copy dog-eared is because I had the privilege of um, reading this book throughout. <laughs> As Joe would send me chapters and stories of this book, and I just, I don't want to dog-ear this copy because it just means so much to me. Uh, you know, you talked about connections, Joe. And, and how things relate. And this book is very much about these random moments that seem random, but really aren't. Um, some people would call them God incidences. Some people would call them coincidences, whatever. But your life, I mean, I know how it happened. Can you share with my audience how you ended up in Moscow dealing with you know, highest levels of groups in Moscow inside the government that, you know, KGB, whatever you want to call those folks over there that scare the heck out of us, right? And dealing with Russian mafia and some U.S. kind of stuff that you yeah. were just on. Um, oh, God, I can't think of the name of the show. Uh, 48 Hours. 48 hours that you were yeah. just on and interviewed for because of this. So I'm yeah. Mike, go for that, it. That's another, we'll get to that story. That's another crazy intersection of lines and connections over time and space. So the, the beginning is uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I closed my eyes, opened up the course catalog for, for the classes in, in school. You did one I of those. Twirled my finger in the air and just slammed it down on the paper. And, and the finger landed on a class called Who Are the Soviets? I had no, you know, I don't have any Russian blood. I wasn't a kid who grew up and said, I must read Russian literature in the original Russian. Like, that's not me at all. But I took the class and it was Russian politics, literature, culture. And it was really neat. I mean, it was really interesting and fascinating. And my father said, if you want to have any chance of understanding these people, you should start studying Russian language right now. And that was sophomore, junior year. And I was too stupid to understand that that was going to be really difficult. So I started and I got hooked. And it was the only thing that I studied right in college. I, studying right means I did it almost every single day. And, you know, if you study music or, or language things like that. You have to do it every day. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And and I did it. And I got hooked. And I ended up going to Russian summer school at Bryn Mawr College outside Philadelphia. One summer, I went to Norwich uh, Military Academy in Vermont for one summer. And it was the kind of place where uh, 
you stand up and say, I promise not to speak English for the next eight weeks. And everything, classes, exams, extracurricular, everything was in Russian. So I just, I dived in at the deep end and got hooked. And then when college was over, I went to Moscow for six months and studied at a language school uh, there. And that's how the ball got rolling. Then I met somebody, and this is one of those, whatever you want to call them, right? Intersections, coincidences, not such a coincidence. I met somebody who had been a, a detective in the NYPD. He got his PhD. He became the vice president of John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City. He then became the vice chancellor of the University of Illinois at Chicago. And his boss said, hey, I know you, you're interested in international things. Here's whatever sum of money, $20,000 or something. Go set up relationships around the world. And he set up relationships with Chinese police and Israeli police, Egyptian police, Chilean police, all over the place, but not Russian. So my first year working for him, he said, okay, uh, I'm going to send you to China for six months. Okay, good deal. I'm not going to argue with you. Excellent. Okay, let's just step back one step yeah. and give a time frame. Because the way, you know, Russia was back then and now yeah. yes. is, is a bit different. So nobody should be thinking of this in terms of the 2000s. Right. This is 1987. 1986 was the first time I went to the Soviet Union. So I went for a tour for three months. And then 1987, I studied there for six months. I moved to Chicago to work for the vice chancellor in September of 1987. He sent me to China in 1988. And then by the time I got back from China, he had gone to the Soviet Union and developed relationships with the Soviet police and uh, asked me one day uh, after, after the organized crime control department of the Soviet National Police had sent two of their colonels to Chicago, my boss says to me, how would you like to go work in Soviet National Police headquarters for four months with these cops. And I said, no. And he said, I don't blame you. <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? No. I said, well, I've been watching you. You're a bit of a wheeler dealer. I haven't been to Moscow in two and a half years, three years. I haven't spoken Russian in three years. So if you send me for a year, I'll do it. And so he's like, all right, tough guy. Great. You're going for a year. So he sent me over there. It ended up being about nine or 10 months. And I had a desk in the organized crime control department of the Soviet National Police uh, at a time when Gorbachev had come into power two years earlier, three years earlier. The Soviet Union was collapsing. The Russian mafia was on the rise. It was starting to take over the country in every sense of the word. And here I was 23 uh, years old, 23, 24 years old, sitting in Moscow, uh, having my eyes ripped wide open from my naive Long Island upbringing and kind of sheltered and protected uh, to see, you know, kind of how the world works, especially kind of the world in extremis almost at that point. For a for a normal, you know, first world or first world first worldish country to be going through collapse, it was pretty dramatic. And one day, just as a quick example, I'm in my supervisor's office. My supervisor was the deputy chief of organized crime control. There's a bang on the door, and the door flies open before he says, "Come in." One of his agents comes rushing into the room, stops in the middle of the room looks at me, says to the supervisor, can I talk in front of him? He says, yes. And the agent says, you know, we just learned that Ivan Ivanovich, who's going to be in this meeting in 15 minutes with you and the deputy minister of, of the internal affairs is connected to the mafia. You know, at that moment, I was kind of in shock, holding my breath. Like, what are you talking? Like, this is National Police Headquarters. You guys are colonels and generals, and you're running the organized crime control department. What do you mean this guy is part of mafia? And 
And Gennady, my supervisor, just kind of sat back and stuck his fingers on the bridge of his nose and basically, you know, kind of whispered an expletive under his breath. And, and that was it. And what I realized was mafia wasn't really mafia the way I thought of it. It wasn't five Italian families in New York City. It wasn't structured groups. It was just kind of everywhere. It was just a mafia state of mind in the whole country, which it took me some time to figure that out. But that's what ended up happening. I mean, that as I, as I read the book, right, knowing time and space and place of where a number of these stories were told that, you know, you actually lived through, like the one you just talked about and then putting it in a current year state of brain of 2021, I feel like nothing's changed in terms of what the average American, average world person sort of knows about these inner workings. And yet somehow the Russian mafia has become even more powerful, more intertwined from the outside looking in with the government there with, it sure seems like governments here must be okay with it because they can't seem to control it. Like they did the Italian mafia that, you know, everybody kind of knew who they were in New York. You know, you'd go down to Arthur Avenue and the mob owned this and the mob owned that. But the mob kept the neighborhoods pretty dang nice and took care of the people. The These new mobs, the Russian mob, the you were in China, so you've got the, the Yakuza. Is, is oh, that? That's Japanese. Japanese. Um, mm. But, you know, China's got its own and, and you've got all that. It just feels like the mob is different than what it used to be. I mean, when you're living there in Russia and you're still got stuff going on, I'm sure now that you don't even want to talk about, I don't know how you could have lived there with an American mentality and dealt with all of this. Yeah, well, very quickly you found out that an American mentality wasn't very useful over there. Right? And so in 1980, six and 87 when i was studying over there just take simple things you know we, we can get to the mafia concept in a second but it helps to start at the grassroots and that is in in 1987 i did things like bribe my way into empty restaurants okay so you had you had to pay every step of the way i can't tell you how many cops i've bribed when i was over there just on traffic stops, um, the the waiters in the restaurants would lock the door from the inside and keep it locked. And we, you know, we'd bang on the door. They open the door just a little bit to talk to us, and th and they'd say ten rubles. I say, what do you mean ten rubles? Yeah, ten rubles to let you in. And I look over his shoulder. The 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 restaurant is empty. And my mentality is, you're going to open a restaurant to make money. Their mentality is the state owns this restaurant along with everything else. We don't care if anybody comes in. We're still going to make our 200, 300 rubles a month. But if you want to get in here, you pay us 10 rubles. We'll split that with the wait staff and our friends and all that. And then we'll let you in. But if you don't want to pay the 10 rubles, we don't care. And this concept of the gatekeeper, who has control over what? And if you're powerful enough to be positioned in a gatekeeper spot, then you get to talk about, you get to say who gets in and who doesn't get in. Well, guess what? The entire country works like that. And over time, I came to realize that it's not just the restaurant. It's not just the cop. It's the system. It's the system from top to bottom. And when I wrote my first book on the Russian mafia about 12 years ago called Investigating the Russian Mafia, when I was doing the research for that book, I came to realize that the people and the situations I ran into in the 1990s were the same situations that Russia had 500 years ago. This is a cultural space 
This is a psychological way of being. This is a power game writ large. This is about relationships and negotiation. This is not about democracy. This is not about rule of law. This is about power game. And that's what Russia is, as far as I'm concerned, in my perspective. The corruption, the black markets, the the uh, counterfeiting goods, the murder, mayhem, whatever. That's not new. That did not start in the 1990s because of the Russian mafia. Russia is a dog-eat-dog world, period. At every so it was like level. that, just going to interrupt a second. It was yeah. like that before the communism came in. It was like that when they had, you know, the the oligarchies and everything there. It's been like that for hundreds of years. A friend, the friend of mine was the head of Interpol for Russia, right? So every country has its own Interpol office. My friend was the head of the Interpol office for Russia. And he said, I don't understand what the big deal is. It's just that you're finally finding out what we're like. <laughs> it's like the West is just finally understanding what we are. That's what we are. I, I, I it's you know, staggering. I, it's staggering. I read isn't it, it? Okay. I've read this book multiple, multiple times, you know, in every iteration from start to finish. And I'm still stuck in my mindset of fairness, of um, not dog eat dog, of try to give everybody opportunity, try to whatever. It's not a democratic thinking. It's just a, fine, I'll, I'll say the word, it, it's a moral way of thinking. But what you describe and what you talk about of that Russia you're saying for hundreds and hundreds of years and your friend at Interpol is, is really that doggy dog that we're all in it for ourselves mentality. And I help me wrap my head around that, Joe, how did you shift? I mean, was there a moment that you finally got this? Uh, I'm sure there are many moments. So the, the thing is that it's it's when you ever when you go into a new culture, right? Let's use prison culture. If you go into a new culture, you have to understand what the codes are. What's the code? What did what's the language mean? Who's the boss? How are we going to maneuver around each other? It's the same thing going into any culture. So going but even into, the American culture, you have to understand. Of course, that. right? Yeah, okay. and and the American culture is easy for people from places like Russia, China, Nigeria, even, even parts of Europe. Re American culture is kind of easy to understand in that it's all on the surface. So people who are used to scamming and deception and, and maneuvering and manipulating in order to get what they want, in order to get basic food, goods, and services, then coming here is an easy, is an easy deal. Going there is more difficult. So they, I'll give you a quick example. In 1990, I went to the, I was working in the, in the uh, headquarters, National Police Headquarters. I went to the bureau of, the Moscow Bureau of the Chicago Tribune. I was living in Chicago at the time. I said, let, let me go talk to them and I'll see if they have files on Russian mafia, you know, whatever. They can open up their, their files to me. Turns out at that point, they, like most of the world, were not following the Russian mafia that closely. But the journalist there introduced me to his office manager. Okay. His office manager is Russian. So let me just lay this out for you and just think about it from an American mentality. The office manager is Russian. He has a job at a foreign newspaper. He speaks English really well. He's very personable and has a good sense of humor. And our American mentality would say, oh, good for him. He's developing a career. He got an opportunity to work with foreigners. He studied so hard, speaks English really well. You know, he's a very nice guy, right? At least my naive, protected American slash Long Island mentality says, oh, wow, what a nice fellow. And he's successful. Right. And my Russian side says, 
he's KGB, period. <laughs> okay? Because the only way he would get where he is is if he was KGB. So the first meeting we had, I'm listening to him. His English is almost flawless. He tells me how, that he served in the military. But not only that, he traveled overseas. Not only that, he was the aide-de-camp of a general in the Soviet army. Not only that, his you know he had opportunities that other people didn't have. Not only that, his mother worked in the state planning agency, which all are little pieces. They're little chips, right? And I talked a lot about kaleidoscope in the book. All these little pieces of colored glass that make up the picture. And then when we turn that kaleidoscope, the picture gets confused and puzzling and everything else. And when I finished talking to that guy for the first time, I knew he was KGB. And he showed me his KGB credentials. Uh, when was it? 18 years later. 18 he, years. 18 years later, when I was back in Moscow for a quick trip, he, I guess he kind of like was surprising me. And it's like, hey, you know, look at this. I've, I'm in KGB. And I've been, I was like, dude, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I've known since the day I met you. But I liked him a lot. So we stayed friends and we actually worked together quite closely for a long time because he was really good at his job and he was really good at accessing information. But, but that's, that's the code, right? So let me connect back to the prison for a second and then I'll, and then I'll shut okay. up. Okay. <laughs> the, the prison idea is not just a frivolous one to talk about in passing in terms of codes. Soviets had a prison mentality. They had language. They called the big prison, the big zone, prisons called zone in slang, the big zone and the small zone. The small zone were the real prisons, as you and I understand. The big zone was the country. Oh. The country was the prison. You can't get out easily. You need special permission. The ruble is not a real currency. It's just like a prison chit, something to use to get things out of the prison commissary. The state could change the value of anything they wanted at any time. They could change your sentence. They could, they could do anything they wanted to you as a citizen, not inside prison, as a citizen. So you walk into the store and an American mentality in 1990s and, and 2000s, you walk into the store, you're going to find anything you want. You walk into a store in the Soviet Union in the 80s and 90s, the likelihood was you weren't going to find what you wanted. And if you found it today, it's not going to be there in three days because supply and demand work differently over there. So that you have this mentality of, I must fight for everything. I must have relationships to find what we need to survive. When I came back from six months in Moscow, just six months in 1987, I went to a U.S. supermarket. I stood in the cereal aisle and I almost cried. And I walked out with nothing in my hands because it was too confusing to make a choice. Because for six months, I was, oh, I hope they have this. Oh, I hope I can find some fruit in the store, which I usually didn't. Oh, I hope there's some milk. Oh, I hope. And it's just this mentality was totally. And that was six months. Now, what do you do with a lifetime or a 500-year, 1,000-year culture of that kind of thinking? It sets us up for scam and deception and manipulating. And my buddy said, when it, in terms of corruption, we get this with our mother's milk. We understand by the time we're eight or nine years old that we have to play games to get what we want. So basically, the country created the Russian mafia as it was. They're like the hierarchy, the the monarchy of the citizenry, because these are the people that have learned how to get everything that they need. And they're setting a lot of the terms now, not even the government, but I'm thinking the government has said, oh, yeah, we like you here doing whatever because we're getting something from you as well. Is that 
the way my brain should be going with what you're talking about or is so, it incorrect thinking? No, you're, you're heading in the right direction. So every, every mafia grows out of its culture, right? So our mafia, our everything, our prisons, our whatever, are kind of a joke to Russians. Well, I, was, I did uh, some films for A&E investigative reports. And one of the films, we went inside Russian prison. And one of the inmates said, yeah, fine. You, you want to arrest me in the United States and put me in prison? Fine. That's a joke compared to our prisons. You know, our mafia, you're a joke compared to our mafia. We're, we're, we grew up in this mentality of constant, like we were just saying, right? Manipulation, corruption, scandal, relationships, negotiation. That's what we did on a daily basis. But it's not just the mafia that became the monarchy, whatever you want to call it. They weren't the only ones doing it. So there was a vast illegal black market underworld network of people who weren't necessarily gangsters. They would have been called businessmen in our country. Okay. But business was illegal, right? So everything became illegal. So, you know, we talk about asking questions. It's all about the questions. The question for me became, what does illegal and legal mean? What does immoral and moral mean? What do they mean after being in this environment? If I followed an American, a strictly American way of life in Russia, in the Soviet Union, in the 1980s, 1990s, I'm not so sure I would have survived. It sounds like you wouldn't have gotten food yeah, or yeah, a just, place to live or yes. electricity or whatever you needed for basics of survival. Everything that I got over there as an American came through my relationships. Every apartment I got, I didn't, I didn't look up the newspaper or get online and say, oh, let me find an apartment. And as an independent entity, I could go live. I found... You know, is it possible? Of course it's possible, but you need insulation and the insulation are the contacts. And I want to do three things through as many contacts and the closest contacts I have as possible. Why? The mentality of the place. Thinking about this, 11 time zones. This place dwarfs virtually every other country in the world. 11 time zones with people that experience the KGB, informants everywhere, the gulag labor camps, family and friends who were taken in the middle of the night. When I was there in 86, 87, when I went to visit friends in their apartments, they would say, don't speak English, don't talk on the stairways until you get into the apartment and the apartment door is closed and locked and then you can talk. And then we would sit around the kitchen table till one, two o'clock in the morning, drinking shots of vodka. And they would tell me in hushed tones about their family experience with Stalin and the camps and who in their family was killed and who in their family was sent away. That little slice alone, try to get your American head around that. I can't because it just seems... Like, why don't they uprise and push against it? But you've said it's because it's all they know. It's And they believe in the strong hand. They've always believed in the strong hand. You know, they looked at us in the 1990s when the Soviet Union started collapsing. People said to me, your democracy is like children playing with matches. You know, we don't want what you have. We want what you have in terms of your cars and your clothes and everything else. We don't want your brand of government. It's too irresponsible and it's too undisciplined. And it's just a recipe for disaster. And you know what? It, in some ways, it's really hard to disagree with them. I mean, just look around what's going on right now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and historically, they like to have a strong figure at the top because Number one, chaos means blood. And number two, they've been invaded for the last, you know, thousand years. So they need protection. They, that's why they had all those countries. That's why they had all that, that territory. 
You know, they why do we go invade Yugo, uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland and everything else? Because in their head, they're like, we better have some buffer around us because we keep getting screwed. We keep getting invaded okay. by the Poles. I mean, you know, ancient history, right? The Poles and the Teutonic Knights out of Germany and, you know, wave after wave and the Mongols from the east. And historically, they're like, oh, man, we got we got to protect ourselves. And from an American perspective, it's totally it's totally not understandable. But if you put it in those terms, oh, yeah, I guess it is understandable if that's what you experienced. OK, so taking that look at it. What I still struggle with is do the people in the 80s and the 90s and even today see how the Russian mob, the Russian people in control in the government who basically hold everybody else down and still have so much lack for the average person that they're living these lifestyles of our wealthiest people, you know, our billionaires that have these insane lives. They're, there's no middle class, so to speak, from what we can see from the outside of the Russian, from what you talk about in in your book. There's either they're literally the haves and the have nots, but the have nots seem to have even less than anybody else unless they're involved in the black market or whatever. And that's somehow even given with permission of these people who are wearing the jewels and going to these restaurants that aren't even hidden and these palaces that they have that communism supposed to get rid of. So I don't even know if this is the conversation to have in here, but you just have me thinking, Joe, you know, so, so, I don't know anybody else to ask these questions of. So here's the, here's the question. What are you going to do? What are you As a do? Russian? Yeah. What are you going to do? I was standing on a street corner across like, hundred yards from the Kremlin. It was, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And this car comes screeching up. Four thugs get out of the car. They run over to another car where a man was just about to get in. They grab him, throw the, him in their car, and they speed off. The, tons of people are watching this. What are you going to do? Question number one, do you want to die today? You know, okay. do you want to have, do you want to get uh, beaten up? There's an old man stepped off a curb waiting for the light to turn red. He stepped off the curb enough steps, two, three steps off the sidewalk to make the oncoming BMW alter its path a little bit. And that driver was so put out by having to alter his path a little bit. He slammed on the brakes, got out of the car and beat the shit out of the old man. Really? So, now you tell me this this mentality. It's not like you can't find this mentality everywhere in the world. But the Russian mentality seems to be an extreme of everything else, right? We have mafia, we have corruption, we have organized crime, we have crazy people, we have all kinds of stuff. Over there, it seems so much more intense because of the weather, because of the drinking, because of the politics, because of the disparity in incomes, as you, as you just said, because of the power of the person who has the money, the power of the gatekeeper. I can do anything I want to you. I have a friend who, he was guilty of manslaughter, okay? He didn't go to prison. He didn't even go to court. Why? Because he knew the prosecutor. Does that happen anywhere in the world? Sure. But in the Soviet Union, it just seems so much more intense because the whole mentality was like this. If you have a nine-year-old and, and the, my buddy says, we get this with our mother's milk. And by the time you're a teenager, you're trying to figure out, should I join a gang? Should I join the mafia? And you're just a normal teenager who is the son, the 16-year-old son of a woman I was dating in Moscow. That was her worry. It's like, how do I protect my son? And they weren't thugs and they weren't gangsters and they were just normal people who couldn't make ends meet. 
because in 1992, 93, 94, 95, you walk into a supermarket, the shelves are empty. Now what are you going to do? You know, and it's just, it's just this constant drumbeat. Let me throw one more overlay on it. In 1986, uh, when I went over there as a tourist, our group went into a cemetery, a cemetery in Duisburg, in Leningrad. And when you walk in the cemetery, that day it was very cold. There were speakers in the trees, pipe, piping in uh, funereal music. Okay. And you walk through this cemetery, and they're just slabs of granite. And the only thing on these slabs of granite are the years, 1942. 1943, 1944, and 100,000 bombs drop on St. Petersburg, drop on Leningrad from the Germans. And you just walk through there, and I'm sure countless people walk through there, Leningraders walk through there saying, you know, is my loved one under there? Just this mass grave of just profound suffering that we went through at the hands of outsiders. You know, this makes for a psychology that's just different from ours. Does that make sense? It, it does. It, it My brain kept trying to link some different things, wondering if reading your book, talking to somebody like you who's been there and has different perspectives could perhaps help us understand some of what's happening here in America. And my show's listened to all around the world. And I want to thank Egypt for taking it up to number one recently. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we see these stories of gangs on the uprise here in the United States in um, different cultural groups and different cities inside our country. Could some of this learning that you have this perspectives help us understand some of that and maybe shift it before it becomes so ingrained that mothers see more of their kids who are currently now in some areas of major cities are saying gangs are our only way to survive. We don't have any other option. I, I don't know, Joe, you know, it's, I never thought about this stuff before because mm -hmm. I've lived a privileged life here in America in a lot of ways. You know, we were middle class. We worked for my family, worked for everything they had really hard, you know, but I, I went to a private Catholic girls school. You know, my parents figured out a way to get me there. I got scholarships to go to college, you know, but a lot of people don't have that. And these stories you talk about in your in your book, which everybody needs to get, by the way, and I got my, my little card from Joe too. Um, it, it makes me think of here where I live. I live in Florida. So as we all know, there's all sorts of craziness in Florida right now with politicians and stuff like that. Uh, pandemics created a lot of that as well. I mean, how do you wrap your head around it and take those lessons, Joe, and use them in some way? You know, there are so many ways. You just, I could write a book just off of your comments because there's so much there. There's so many things to talk about. Um, All right, cool. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out where to start. So so the the, the problem that we have one of the many problems that we have is that uh, after 9-11, a lot of uh, enforcement resources shifted to terrorism. Okay. So we got off the Russian track. Number two, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of the Russian departments in universities wound down. Right. So kids stopped being attracted to studying Russian. Departments couldn't finance, have the budget, whatever. And so that so the infrastructure of your question is lacking. So how do we train people to understand other cultures? You know, if I, I play this game in my head from time to time, if I were a king, if I were a dictator, what would I make my people do? And what I would make my people do is mandatory live overseas for at least a year when you're in high school and you cannot go to Western Europe, right? You have to go to... You have to go to 
Cambodia, you have to go to Vietnam, you have to go to China, you have to go to Russia, you have to go to Kazakhstan, whatever. Just to understand that the world is a different place than what we know it to be. Next thing is uh, our social fabric is deteriorating partly because we're in that same struggle of how do we survive. For example, in Long Island where we grew up, I have very little concept of how people survive there. I have very little concept of how people pay dollars $20,000 a year just in property tax Crazy. And, and send their kids to school and put food on the table and have their insurance. And like, so do you see what's happening here? Right. Everything we just talked about for the last half hour. Where do you think we're heading? When you look at, uh, well, let me back up a second because you said, how do we ingrain, how do we do this before it becomes ingrained? Law enforcement tried in the 1970s and 80s, grassroots, on the ground, boots on the ground law enforcement tried to tell their supervisors, we in the United States have a problem with Russians, with Russian, Soviet, mafia, organized crime, whatever you want to call it. And the supervisors said, show me the structure. And the cops said, it's not structured like that. It's not five families, you know, the Gambinos and the Colombos and all the rest. Of it's not like that. They're extremely fluid. They often work in cells. They often don't know each other. They're often small groups that have shifting relationships. And they're all about making money. So if we can help each other make money, great, we'll do it. And they made billions in the 1980s just off of, gasoline tax skimming fraud. Wow. And they did insurance fraud, health insurance fraud, auto accidents, uh, fake auto accidents, staged auto accidents. They run alcohol, vodka that's colored like Windex and brought into the United States through ports with fake bills of lading and all that stuff. Like anything you can imagine, they are, are adept at doing. And it's still happening even more now. But here's here's the bigger issue. The bigger issue is a lot of these guys, the gangsters, right? The real gangsters. They, as quickly as possible in the 1990s, shifted to business. So that the gangsters who were part of some of the biggest drug trafficking networks in the world also owned banks and uh companies and import export and we're doing whatever they had to do to launder money and buying massive amounts of uh, elite property in london in paris in new york and wherever else you know and on the one hand you can say well this is just what every culture does the chinese own tons of property the saudis who owns american debt and all the rest of it but as we've seen over the last few years uh, I think the Russians are a different, they're just a slightly different breed. If for no other reason, then yes, they did influence American politics. And yes, they did influence the White House. And yes, they do have close ties to top politicians in the United States. And here's the problem. And this is what, so all the things that we talked about and all the things we have in our book, what's the culmination? The culmination is that Russian state and Russian mafia are frequently impossible to pull apart in terms of who's who. And that there is no such thing as independent money in Russia. So if you get something like someone like Eric Trump or Donald Trump Jr. saying, oh, we don't need American banks. We get all the money we need from Russia. Oh, of course. I mean, there are a lot of wealthy people in Russia. You know, there are a lot of billionaires. They want to invest too. And they've been investing in our golf courses and everything else. And that's lovely, except there's no independent money in Russia. So if you think that the money, the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that have been flowing into Trump Tower and Trump golf courses and Trump whatever campaign probably 
if you think that's just money by people who want to see him become president, think again. Because the top gangsters in Russia are are and have been for a long time friends with Putin and friends with the hierarchy. And things like that don't happen without the, the most powerful forces at the top knowing about it. Whether it's the top gangsters influencing the government or the top government influencing the gangsters or the two of them strategizing together to, to pull off what they want to pull off, this is not an accident. Well, it sounds like nothing that you share in, in your book that we've talked about here today, the stories, that really everything is crafted. And in order to survive for the average person in Russia and the stories that you talk about, it, it's all about their survival. How do you get the basic things? So, because we're getting close to the end of the show, Joe, I want to make sure that, you know, we, we cover how people can get your book and all that other stuff too. But, you know, to make this a topic that's not just a political one or anything like that, because there's so much we can unpack in many, many episodes, <laughs> just talking about that last thing that you just talked about. I mean, when somebody is reading your book, when somebody is thinking about this episode, when they're listening at it, is there something they, they, they could take or think about, about their own lives, their own intersections in, in America, in Egypt, in Ireland, in Russia, where actually the show is kind of followed quite a bit, and, and several other places that you'd sort of like the takeaway to be for people, or yes. one of the takeaways. Yeah, one of the takeaways, uh, First of all, I wanted to bring some a little bit of clarity, at least from my perspective, on what Russia was and is. So I want people to look at it a little bit differently. And connected to that, number two is I would like people, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if this is being frivolous. I want people to think a little more deeply. Part of the problem, and this is the, the basic premise of your show, right? It's all about the questions. So let's ask questions. And so when the media pops up spouting off about whatever, whether it's Fox or MSNBC or whoever, I don't care. The question is, how do you know that? How do you know that thing that you're reporting? What is it you're not telling us? What are your interests? What are you connected to? Who are you connected to? What money interests are you connected to? I want people to think a little bit more. Um, and it's, it's hard to do because we've been so sheltered from the world. I often say the two things that the two best things and the two worst things that happened to the United States are the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. It saved us from a lot of horror of European wars and it isolated us from the rest of the world. Right. So that we don't really know how the rest of the world functions. And we have to get outside of our simplistic, superficial, provincial thinking and question the, inf the sources of information around us a lot more. And that's difficult for a lot of people, which is, as you said, why I created this show. It's all about the questions because literally, and I say this at the end of every one of my shows, the right questions can change your life. If you don't ask the deeper questions, the uncomfortable questions and keep pushing to get answers, then we're going to be thinking that everything about our, our life is always the way it's going to be, good or bad. Um, we're always going to be poor or we're always going to be wealthy when things can change on a dime, as we've seen when COVID hit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, COVID's created more billionaires than any other time in history. It's fascinating. But if you don't ask the question, well, why did it? Where did those billionaires come from? What were the industries? Then you have other businesses where we've seen have all closed their doors because they couldn't pivot. 
I mean, look at Sears. They weren't asking the right questions <laughs> along the way. They weren't seeing the reality in front of them. So thinking along that lines, Joe, I think that's brilliant. And I loved that your book made me think. And it made me think in ways I never thought about thinking before and has me asking the questions like I asked you today that you said you can write another book or something on about, you know, what's happening, what are the intersections here and maybe how we can begin to shift things. And I, you would be a brilliant person in my understanding of you to maybe help America through a bunch of stuff that we're dealing with and local communities to deal with it based on these perspectives you had. But I digress because I love you so much and you just constantly, Joe, make me think. Ever me, since that first hug. I know I know we're winding down. Let me throw out this one last thing. In COVID, we watched people panic. We saw lines grow longer and longer. We saw to toilet paper and God knows what else disappear from the shelves. And we went through that for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. Russians went through that for years at a time. I, I want to make sure I say this. There are a lot of amazing things about Russia. There are a lot of fantastic things about the Russian people. And there are a lot of things that the U.S. is guilty of ourselves. So we can't paint this as they're bad, we're good. That's where the thinking comes in and questioning what it is that we're seeing and what it is that we're reading and hearing and all the rest of it. Yeah, because throughout your book, I... I've always had a fascination with the Russian people, reading their history and the stories, which history and stories tend to be one-sided or paint a picture or whatever. But I mean, Anna Karenina, Tolstoy, all of that other stuff, you reignited something where I want to meet some average Russian people because the love, the passion, the joy they have for the littlest things is really powerful. So that really told me something and, and that comes through in the book. So let's, before we end, make sure everybody knows how to get a copy of your book and to reach out to you if they have questions. Yes. So autographed copy of the book at vodkahookers.com. I love that. <laughs> Uh, and you can find me at uh, joe at joeserio.com, uh, info at vodkahookers.com. I think even joe at vodkahookers.com. Uh, so, yeah, happy to, to talk, answer any questions. I got a letter from a Russian man the other day saying he loved the book and he was shocked and amazed at how right I got it. So that was a huge Wow, um, you know, kind of pat on the back. So that was a great thing to uh, to read. Yeah, and when you're not writing books like this, you're training 911 operators and doing a lot of stuff with law enforcement and things. Yeah, I'm a leadership and wellness uh, trainer and speaker uh, for government agencies. Yeah, and you've got, certainly got the experience. <laughs> <laughs> to do that, Joe. So one more time, people can find you at vodkahookers.com. They can get an autographed copy of the book. And your book is also for sale pretty much everywhere books are sold as well. Yes. And we will be launching the audiobook in uh, January. Okay. Audiobook in January. Yes. Great. Is it available as an ebook currently? Yeah. It, uh, it's on Kindle. It's okay. uh, on Amazon as Kindle. Uh, we actually haven't put up the paperback yet, but that'll be going up in the next week or so. Okay. Although I, I do love, and for those listening just on podcast, I keep holding up the book because the cover is, I just love, love, love the cover. <laughs> just as a quick aside, that cover was designed by a Russian woman who lives in Moscow. Well, I, I feel it. You know, you can, they say you, a lot of people choose a book by the cover, well, it's really true, even on Amazon and all the ebook things, because you're scanning through unless you know the title of a book, which, by the way, Joe Serio's book is Vodka Hookers and the Russian Mafia, My Life in Moscow. For those that are just listening on podcasts, um, it's there's so much inside the covers of this book. So thank you for writing it, Joe, and for shifting my perspective on things. Thank you. And thanks for having me.
Oh, always a pleasure. You're going to have to come back on again because yes. I just love and adore you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. I want to thank Joe for being my guest on the show today. I hope he has shifted your thinking about a lot of things that you deal with on a daily basis and got you just asking some different questions. Remember to reach out to him at vodkahookers.com. Uh, grab a copy of his book and, you know, out on social or via email to me, let me know what you're thinking after today's episode. It's a very different episode than what I normally talk about. We got into some politics. We got into the way the world works outside of what we here in the United States often think of as the world works. But we also know that a lot of what Joe talked about is happening here in the United States. It's happening all over the world. So I'd love to know what you think and what new questions you're learning to ask. At the end of the day, everybody, remember the right questions can change your life. So what are you asking today? Have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today. 